now once more uh, in, in expounding the Ten Commandments. Hear the Word of God. You can turn there if you like, but it's yet another short line. The Ninth Commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Uh, and, and having read God's Word, let us pray together. Dear Lord, uh, we find yet another priority of yours set forth for the church. Here is your top ten. Here is your will that you would have us to do. The kinds of things that if we have true love for our neighbor, we will do spontaneously. Although uh, not against the law, but in agreement with the law. But even then, we need the law to remind us, to check us and curb us, because we aren't ruled and guided by love purely. We still have sin. We need to mortify sin. We need to see it and define it and then kill it. Well, here is a sin that ought to be mortified, perhaps the commonest sin of all. In fact, I'm prepared to say that this is the commonest sin of all lying. Lord, help us uh, to sit under your word and to be searched by it and tried by it. It's a wearying task. Uh, but it's beneficial, ultimately, uh, those of us who have the spirit and the law already written in our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you cause us to rejoice and delight in your will? And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. The ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Here is a command which has to do with truth. About it, John Calvin says the objective of this commandment is to show that because God, who is truth, abhors falsehood. We should maintain the truth without any pretense. I especially like that last phrase, without any pretense. In other words, Christians are those who are interested in the truth. They are uh, committed to the truth. And uh, they are men and women without any pretense. In other words, as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes, your no be no. He is describing Christian simplicity, a Christian in his honesty does not ordain or, or um, he does not um, uh, the, the word is escaping me. <laughs> uh, he does not uh, place ornaments on his speech. That was what I was trying to say uh, in order to uh, essentially conceal the truth. But he is a man, as I say, who is simple and who is honest. The shorter catechism says this. What is required in the ninth commandment? The ninth commandment requireth the maintaining and promoting of truth between man and man and of our own and our neighbor's good name, especially in witness bearing. What is forbidden in the ninth commandment, the ninth commandment forbiddeth whatsoever is prejudicial to the truth or injurious to our own or our neighbor's good name. Once again, what we notice is, uh, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, that the commands of the Lord are exceedingly broad. We have just a few words in the ninth commandment, but the more we study them, especially in light of the broader teaching of scripture, uh, and the more that we try to work out the ethic in our own lives, we discover his commandments are exceedingly broad, not narrow. What is at stake once more is the truth. And in particular, as the command teaches us, the truth with respect to my neighbor or my brother. Because if I tell a lie about him, I might harm him. He might uh, be in trouble. Because I told a lie and truth is Dalma says in his works on his work on the Ten Commandments is a matter of precision. Now, recognizing that we realize that truth is almost always for us a matter of approximation. We are never uh, fully 
in accord with the truth, but we want to be as close as we can be. Our, our goal is to approximate the truth as much as possible, to be as precise as we possibly can. In other words, uh, going back to the idea of Christian simplicity and honesty, not to exaggerate, not to embellish, not to flat out lie, and so on. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What is the need to be so complicated uh, and ornate in your speaking? But back to our neighbor. John Calvin also says, we sometimes do more harm to our neighbor by lying than by stealing. And you remember, theft was the prior commandment. And yet uh, what he's saying is that uh, you, you will do more harm to him by harming his reputation than by stealing his goods. And that is because, as Proverbs 22, verse 1 declares, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. You might steal something that a man had for a day, but if you ruin his reputation, you will steal from him for a lifetime. But if we were to ask why it is stated as it is, not bearing false witness and thus placing us in the courtroom, the question we have is whether the commandment deals only with that. Why does God, in giving us the commandment, place us in the courtroom? And can we see a broader application? Well, we can and we should. The reason that God places us in the courtroom in the ninth commandment, in essence telling us not to lie, but, but, uh, but telling us not to lie in that setting, is because, as with the other commands... God wants us to see the sinfulness of the sin by its worst and its most blatant aggravation. And in doing so, to make the sin or the sinfulness of the sin which he is forbidding appear to us very clearly. And so in each of the commandments, he tells us to do that which is most obviously wrong, as well as the things which we are least likely to do. And by this, he includes all lesser aggravations. And so when he says, for instance, you shall not murder, it's something that people are agreed about. We shouldn't murder. It's also the thing that we're least likely to do. He is uh, engendering agreement with his law. We are, when it's presented like that, prepared to agree what God is saying is right. It's wrong to murder. But once we've admitted that, once God's gotten us on the hook, so to speak, then we must also see, as Jesus teaches us in the Sermon on the Mount, that all lesser aggravations are also included in that teaching uh, with regard to the Sixth Commandment. That would be anger uh, and words spoken in anger and so forth, as Jesus tells us in, again, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Now, it's the same with all the other commandments, which includes the Ninth Commandment. God is, for, is forbidding bearing false witness in a court of law which uh, almost anyone is prepared to agree is wrong and obviously injurious to our brother or our neighbor. But in this, we must also see the sin involved in all falsehood, especially with regard to others. And thus, uh, we could say at this point, as we're nearing the end of our consideration of the Ten Commandments, that the ethics of the Bible works something like this. To admit the greater sin is to admit the lesser sin. However, the ethics of the world works in reverse. And this is what we found in the Pharisees. And that is to to admit the greater sin is to stop there. It's wrong to perjure my brother. Uh, 
Uh, everyone is prepared to say that. It's wrong to kill my brother. But where's the sin in a white lie or a word spoken in anger? Surely you're not prepared to say that is breaking the Ten Commandments, except I am prepared to say that. True biblical ethics says, again, that to admit the worst aggravations are sin is automatically to include all the lesser aggravations. If murder is sin, which we are all prepared to agree with, then obviously, by implication, so too are all the things which lead to it and which are associated with it. Hatred, a word spoken in anger and so forth. Again, you find Jesus saying this in the Sermon on the Mount. The ninth commandment functions in exactly the same way. If it is wrong to perjure, then it is also wrong to tell a lie, even a white lie. And so that's how we're looking again at this exceedingly broad commandment. God places us in the court of law, but he is implying all of these other situations as well. To admit the greater aggravation is to automatically admit and include the lesser aggravations. Well, let us look at this particular command in terms of two vantage points. One, uh, that of God and the other, that of man, especially in terms of a renewed relationship to God. In other words, the Christian man. To sum up the two issues, John Murray uh, in his book says this, his book Principles of Conduct and his chapter, The Sanctity of the Truth. He says, the glory of God is that he is the God of truth. The glory of man is that he is the image of God and therefore of the truth. Now, again. The second point, the glory of man applies only to Christians, as we will see. But let us begin, as Murray does, with God. And explore this question. What is God's relation to the truth? And how does God feel about lying? In other words, we might ask, as Pilate does, what is truth? You might think about the setting in which Pilate asked that question. When you do, you'll realize that uh, as Pilate realized that that is an eminently religious question. It was in the presence of Christ, the Savior and the Lord, who was about to be crucified for our sins, that he asked the question, what is truth? It is a question that is impossible to answer apart from God. But once you realize that truth is an attribute of God, it's something that's true of God first and foremost, so that it's possible actually to say God is truth, just as it's possible to say, for instance, that God is love, then it becomes clear that truth is meaningful and possible only because of God himself. Again, God is truth. That is our starting point. Another way to make this point, if you think about the converse, is to consider whether it's possible for God ever to tell a lie. Just think about that. Is it possible for God to lie? Sometimes my, my children will ask me, is there anything God can't do? And I always say the same thing. Yes, there's something God can't do. He can't sin. He can't sin. You see, just to ask the question whether it's possible for God to tell a lie is to answer it. God cannot lie because truth is his nature and he cannot deny himself, nor would he ever want to. Again, let me quote John Murray. He says, when we speak of the sanctity of truth, we must recognize that what underlies this concept is the sanctity of the being of God as the living and true God. 
He is the God of truth and all truth derives its sanctity from him. This is why all untruth or falsehood is wrong. It is a contradiction of that which God is. And so for Jesus to come into the world, if you think about it in terms of the gospel. What Jesus was doing when he came into the world, as we find, especially in John's gospel, he was seeking to reveal the father to us. And in this, it involved, as he says many times in John chapter 8, it involved telling the truth. I came to tell the truth. Jesus came into the world to tell the truth. He also says in John chapter 14, again, this is a great theme in the Gospel of John. I am the way and the truth and the life because he was God and he is God. Therefore, he is the truth. And so I'll say again, stating it in terms of the Gospel. Concerning God's son, Jesus, the son of God, came into the world to tell the truth. In particular, the truth about God and about man, the realities of sin, heaven and hell. In other words, I think we could say the inconvenient truths that man and sin doesn't want to hear about. And especially the truth that he told was the way to the father, the way of salvation, the plan of God in saving man. Was to come to God through him who was the way, the truth and the life. And so the point is, if you look at it from any vantage point in scripture, if you want to know the truth, you have to get it from God. He is the fountain and the source of all that is true. And yet, as Jesus laments in John chapter eight, verse forty five, which we read, he spoke the truth. But do you remember what he said? Man did not believe it. He told no lie, and yet man called him a liar. And why was that? It was because Jesus tells them that they were of their father, the devil, who always lies. He's been lying ever since he fell from heaven. And that has a way of clarifying man's own relation to the truth. I mean, now that he has fallen, now that he's a sinner. Now that he's a sinner, he has a vested interest in lying and not believing the truth. And in twisting and distorting the truth. It also tells us the depravity involved in lying. And in not believing the truth. Because it's ultimately a rejection of God and his son. It not only involves denying the being of God. And the gospel of God which is truth itself. But takes a man even further. And causes him to deny reality himself. And to live in what uh, is a pretended world. One of the cardinal features of the unregenerate mind. Paul tells us is that he is deceived. He's deceived about everything. He lives in a state of deception. The the unregenerate mind rejects the truth about God and it believes a lie. And again, that distorts his whole view of the entire world, which is Paul's point, as we'll come to soon in Romans chapter one. The first attribute of the unregenerate is, again, the depravity of his mind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And on and on he goes. Or Ephesians chapter 4, which we read last time, where Paul contrasts the old way of life with the new way of life. And notice especially the way that he describes the ways of the old man. It is to be darkened in his understanding. He says, uh, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. 
because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work on cleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. And he goes on to say in verse 25, therefore, the first work of the regenerate man. Putting away lying. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We'll come back to that. But you see the point. The unregenerate man is of his father, the devil. He believes the lie and he always lies. His life and his mind are full of deception. This is something, if you go back in biblical history, stands out most clearly in the garden. If you think of what was involved, not only in the temptation, but in the sin and ultimately the fall of man. When the tempter came in and tempted Eve and then Adam by her. What was at issue specifically in his temptations was the veracity or the truthfulness of God's word and thus of God himself. Could God really be trusted? Did he really say such and such was the case and would happen? Go back to that passage and you'll see that. You see what he was throwing into question was the truthfulness of God's word. And thus, as I said, of God himself, he was casting doubt upon the word of God. And thus Eve, we see, believing the lie, or at least beginning to question the truth, threw the whole world into sin and confusion by her sin. Because she rejected the truth for a lie about God. And thus you see that that sin is really the fountain of all the rest. And every uh, sin which occurs following that has a certain affinity to that original sin. And why Jesus tells us the father of lies has been lying from the beginning. Because that was his first work, at least with respect to man. And that remains his characteristic work. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He is the accuser of the brethren. And if only he can get us to believe his lies, then he can get us to do anything else. If only he can cast doubt upon God's word, then from this all manner of vice will proceed. That's what he discovered and that's what he knew at the garden. And he's been doing the same thing ever since. But man, if you look at the other side of it, again, thinking of Ephesians 4, you have the old man and then you have the new man. Well, the new man is put right with God. And as a result, he is placed or restored to a proper relationship to God. And then, as a result of this, he's able to see the truth again. The truth about himself. The truth about God and so forth. In other words, as Paul says, his mind is no longer darkened with misunderstanding. He no longer lies in the grip of the devil and his lies. He now knows the truth. He believes the truth. He walks in the truth. That's what the Christian is. And so you see, God, by restoring man to himself, restores man to the truth itself. Here is a man, again, the Christian, who has a realistic view of the world. He understands reality and is not so easily deceived as, the, as others are. Nor does he have any interest in deceiving others, which gets at the heart of the ninth commandment. His great interest always, again, now that he's a Christian, just as it was the great interest of Jesus as he came into the world, is the truth and to tell the truth and to believe the truth. And now as a Christian, he knows where to find it. He knows that the world is full of deception. And he doesn't look so much for truth from the world. He looks for it from God. And so if we were to summarize the Christian ethic with regard to the truth, which is what is at stake in the ninth commandment, we could do so simply by two statements. Tell the truth, tell no lie. 
Tell the truth. Tell no lie. Which seems simple enough, at least to say. It seems to be a code that any of us would be willing to live by. But it isn't so easy, it turns out. There are many ways that we still fail to keep the commandments. And then there are also many difficulties we run into as we live in a fallen world and even from an honest commitment seek to work out this ethic. For instance, uh, we have a question like this. Is there, anything, is there any such thing as a righteous lie? What a contradiction in terms. And yet people say that. Reformed teachers and preachers actually say that. I can hardly say the sentence. A righteous lie. There it is. Well, is there such a thing? You already see how I feel about it. Uh, another question. Do we have to tell the whole truth always in every circumstance? That's a real dilemma we find ourselves in. There are many other questions. Let us uh, seek to explore some of them. And let me see, uh, as with the other commandments, if I can offer a little bit of help. As we see the real world implications of the ninth commandment. One of the ways that we fail to keep the ninth commandment, again, I'm speaking to Christians who are restored to the truth and whose commitment is to tell the truth and to tell no lie. And yet, as Calvin says in his shorter catechism, or excuse me, in his institutes, and then we find, not surprisingly, his teaching on the ninth commandment reflected in the shorter catechism. One of the things that we all do, and one of the ways that we all break the ninth commandment, is that we're too ready to listen to a bad report. We love to listen to a bit of gossip. Perhaps we were not the one to give it. Perhaps we did not harm our brother's reputation by slander and gossip. Oh, but we couldn't resist joining in and lending an ear once someone else began to do it. We simply delighted to listen to it. And it would seem, let us be honest, that we're not only all too ready to listen to gossip, but to believe it. Well, you do, do you realize that even then you failed to keep the ninth commandment? You see, you didn't lie, but you listened to a lie. Or at least you were ready to believe it. Perhaps it was true, but perhaps it wasn't. How can you know? Is it not better to try instead to believe the best of others and not receive a bad report? Of course, again, let me say we all do this. We murmur against others in our hearts. We complain at home about this or that person to others. But it all amounts to the same thing, which is that we are not promoting our brother's good name, which is at the heart of the ninth commandment. Against this, Calvin says, let us in every way maintain the honor of all. Let us in every way maintain the honor of all. That's what the ninth commandment is getting at. But again, you see, once you realize that's what's at stake, you realize that it isn't so easy, not as easy as at first we thought. And there are very few Christians who are prepared to live like this. And yet, this is exactly what God would require of you as he reveals his will to you in the Ten Commandments. He wishes to find in his people a commitment to the truth. An abhorrence of every lie and an unwillingness to speak or to listen to a bad report of others or at least a hesitation to believe it, because we know sometimes what is said is certainly true. And at times necessity compels us to believe it. What you see, in other words, is that God is calling us to charity 
with regard to others. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And again, let us see love as with the commandments with respect to others. You see, where there's a true love for our brother, for another. There is a rejoicing in the truth. There is a readiness to believe what is best of others, not the worst, to hope, to endure, to bear with their sin, even if it is true. He who has love, Paul is saying, is not so ready to give up on others. He who has love is willing to give a charitable account of things, to give the benefit of the doubt. And where there is true sin, to gently rebuke, not delighting in the downfall of another. And so looking at it like this, again, with respect to our relationship to others and their good name. This commandment, as much as anything, is calling us to temperance or to carefulness in our speech and our thoughts and our heart. It is commanding us against the rashness by which we so often spread a false report and believe one. God is saying, let there be due restraint in what we say and think and believe of others. And above all, let there be love. And so we find this commandment, not surprisingly, in what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this Saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Realize how much harm you might do by what you say. But then what about some of these more difficult questions, such as must we always tell the truth? That's an interesting practical question that we find in life. One thing is clear. Let me stress again, and I'll stress it again and again. And that is it is always wrong to lie. It is always wrong to lie. I hope to prove that in a moment. But must we always tell the truth? You remember what is said in a court of law. Do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? Is that the Christian ethic? No, it isn't. Let us admit there are times when telling the truth would actually place us in the category of a talebearer. And cause us, therefore, to break the ninth commandment. It would actually make us the gossip, which I was just condemning. The faithful brother, Solomon tells us, conceals a thing, even though he knows it to be true. In other words, he is not so ready to share everything he knows about others. His concern for his brother's reputation restrains him. Again, the element of temperance and restraint. Nowhere in Scripture, and certainly not here in the Ninth Commandment, are we commanded always to speak all that we know. Some things we realize the longer we live are better left unsaid, especially those things which might harm someone else. Of course, again, there is a time when those truths uh, must be told, as for instance, in a court of law. But even then. I think we could agree that there is need for due restraint. We realize in giving our testimony, 
on the witness stand that we are sinners too and that we're always prone in our sin to exaggeration. And so be careful, God is saying. It's a very, very dangerous thing to speak of others. If we really lived by this rule, the ninth commandment, we would do so far less and indeed almost never. Again, speaking of others. But let us see that concealing the truth or not telling the truth is not the same thing as speaking falsehood. To say what we know is false is never allowed. That is a point about which I remain inflexible, though I realize that others are not. And that leads us to consider portions of scripture where it seems that it was. Take, for instance, I'm going to give two examples the instance of the midwives in Exodus chapter 1. That is the most famous example, and then I'll give the example of Rahab, and I'm going to summarize them very briefly. Well, you have an illustration, we are told, of a righteous lie, whereby lying, the midwives saved the Hebrews, and especially their children, and actually did what was righteous. It was righteous for them to lie. That's what we're told. What is more, we are told, God even commended them for their actions, for their lie. But to say that simply fails to to take into account the actual facts of the narrative. For one thing, it never says that they lied. It's entirely possible that their account was accurate, that the women really did bear their children before the midwives could get to them. That is certainly possible. But supposing this wasn't true and what they said, in fact, uh, to Pharaoh was a lie and it was just their excuse for sparing this children. Still, we cannot find any evidence in the narrative or elsewhere that God commended them for their lie or that God, we might say, sanctioned a lie as righteous. All we are told there is that God dealt with them or dealt well with them rather because they feared God. These were women uh, we all admit on both sides of the argument, who did fear God. And even if, out of the weakness of the flesh, they told a lie before Pharaoh, that does not negate the truth of the statement, again, that they feared God. They did. The other famous example is that of Rahab and the spies, which we read of in Joshua. Here is unquestionably a deliberate lie. There's no question this time. It resembles very closely the, 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 uh, the famous question of concerning the Jews in your house in the time of uh, the Nazi occupation, asking, are you hiding Jews? The question confronting people is, what do you say? And that has become a famous example. Are you justified in lying in that circumstance? If you're hiding someone to protect them and the authorities come and they ask, are you hiding these people? That was exactly the dilemma that Rahab found herself in. And her solution, as you know, was to lie. She said to the men what she knew was not true. She spoke what was false knowingly. She told a lie. But you see, even then, Scripture, in commending her, commends her faith and her faithful dealings with the people of God. If you actually study what Scripture says about her in the Old Testament... Or in Hebrews 11 or James chapter 2, you will see that plainly. It never says that she was right to lie. Scripture never sanctions a lie. It only says that she was right to throw in her lot with the people of God and to help them. That is why she was spared. It was because of her faith. And why then her faith was commended to us again and again. Amazing to think. Just set aside her lie for a moment. 
Amazing to think that this harlot of all people sought deliverance from the wrath to come. She recognized what was happening. She saw that God was with the Jews. She wanted to be delivered. She desired to experience salvation from the coming judgment. What a fitting picture of man lost in sin seeking salvation from the judgment to come. It was for this that she was commanded. And if in this she told a lie under the extremities of the situation, we surely can understand. We can certainly pardon her sin, as indeed God himself does. And we wouldn't want this point to tarnish the greater point, which again was her faith, any more than we would Abraham's sins, which are recounted in detail, or Moses' sins, or the disciples, or anyone else. Still, what we find standing out in Scripture, in spite of their sin, was the testimony of their faith. And so it was with Rahab and the midwives. Well, this is something we could continue with. We could continue uh, to study all the famous examples. But I think you would notice, or at least I would seek to maintain, that the point remains throughout. And that is that Scripture never once endorses a lie. It never once speaks of a righteous lie. It endorses people who lied... And even their faith and their actions in the midst of lying. But even then, you see, that is nothing strange. Because piety and impiety are always mixed this side of heaven. Even in the best examples of faith. Again, if you just look at Abraham, you will see that perfectly plainly. It is nothing strange to see these two things. Belief and unbelief standing side by side in the same person in the same moment. But my assertion remains. These people are never commended for lying. And the reason for this is obvious. It is what we considered at the beginning, that the very nature of God is that of truth and that the gospel is seen as a presentation of the truth, a walking in the truth and accepting the truth and so forth. And thus falsehood has no place in the Christian life. You know, there are some things worse than suffering. If you should suffer for doing what is right, that's all right, Scripture says. But there's nothing worse than sinning. If you suffer for telling the truth, it'll be all right, Scripture says. Do not resort to sin, even in the extremity of the situation. Yes, God will forgive you, but that is not the rule. The rule is not to lie under grave extremity. The rule is once more, as I just said, that falsehood has no place in the Christian life, precisely because of who we are and who God is. To lie is always, under any circumstance, a deviation from the calling to which we have been called as Christian people. Put away lying. Or if I were to put it positively, we should love the truth. That's what a Christian is. We love it because we love God. And we love his son who is the truth and the way and the life. We love the gospel which is a presentation of the truth. We've fallen in love with the truth. Equally... We should hate all that is false and put it away. Tell the truth. Speak no lie. There is the ethic once again. Do so, the ninth commandment tells us, especially with regard to our brother. Which is again, as I said earlier, the first main way that the new man, and the, or the new life rather, manifests itself in the new man. And the strongest possible indication that he's put off the old man is that he doesn't lie anymore. Is that he now is a a radical commitment to the truth. But that brings me to the final question. The final ethical dilemma. And that is what about when someone's feelings are at stake? 
when telling the truth would hurt their feelings. When telling the truth would actually harm them. When your wife asks the question, does this dress make me look fat? That's the famous question. What should we say? The answer, by the way, is do I look stupid? That's the correct answer. But we realize that the situation is delicate at such moments. Perhaps a child is asking you something and you, want, uh, you don't want to crush them. Well, here we must remember that while it is our duty never to say what we know is false as though it were true, which state that again unequivocally as the Christian ethic. It is not our duty, as I said earlier, always to say everything we think or to say it bluntly or rudely. Honesty need not be reckless and unrestrained. Christians are those who are committed to being honest, but this does not preclude kindness. You remember in Ephesians chapter uh, four, when Paul is describing the new man and he's admonishing us to put on the new man and the practices of the new man, he not only includes honesty, but he admonishes things like this. Be tender hearted, be forgiving, speak words of encouragement and life to your brother. Don't tear down, but build up. And so it comes back to this. When you think of the new man and his commitments and his ways, the thought that I ended with last time with regard to the Eighth Commandment, and that is that the Christian is one who knows how to hold things in balance. He can speak the truth without being rude. Now, the flesh cannot do that, but the spirit can. The spirit can make a man able to be honest, but also kind and charitable and tender hearted and forgiving. In other words, the Christian realizes that honesty is not license for rudeness. He's still able to be kind and tender hearted and to speak the truth with love, as Paul says, and wisdom and restraint. And so he finds ways in telling the truth to be encouraging always again to build up and not to tear down. That is what he is seeking to do always. Do you remember what the disciples said about Jesus? He said, "Will you leave me, too. And they said, you have the words of life. How could we ever leave you? Well, that's what drew them to Jesus. He always told them the truth. He spoke words of life. And Paul is saying, as that life is spoken to you, it begins to manifest itself in the same way. You become an encourager. You become someone who speaks not only the truth, but like Jesus, words of life. Words which build up others. Those are the kinds of things we should be quick to speak. And we should be slow to speak anything else, beloved. The truth is, as I said before, if we abided by this rule, we would speak of others far less, if at all. But like Christ, we would speak to those very same people, the people whom others, the gossips, are seeking to tear down. Words of life, even as Jesus always did. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 54.